Welcome to the Living It Up podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Living It Up podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of competitive golf, coming to you after the DP World Tour Championship and the RSM Classic down in St. Simons Island. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zero Restriction, the leader in outdoor technical golf apparel. You know you need some gear to better manage the elements. So head to zerorestriction.com, use code LIVINGITUP30 for a very generous 30% off your purchase. This is Brian. I am joined by my friend George and PGA Tour veteran Billy Hurley III. Let's start with you, George. Rory, your uh, undoubtedly your favorite golfer, has won the season-long DP World title. He is now the, the prince of all tides, not just the prince of Pontevedra, the prince, prince, prince of all tides, prince of all coasts. Though we only played in a handful of events, what what do you what do you have to say about the uh, the prince's uh, performance here? I mean, I one, I think again at some point, the the players who are week in and week out on the DP tour have got to be getting fed up. Um, like they have clearly become, I mean, third class citizens in the professional golf ecosystem um right now behind the tour and the corn ferry tour uh you've got guys who show up i think rory played in four actual events in like continental europe and the uk um and somehow wins the, the season-long thing even though john rom who actually did play i think more than rory there has been kind of vocal about being able to go back to spain and playing some of those, you know, the national tournaments in Europe and things like that, wins the event. And not only does he apparently lose ranking points to Adam Spenson, he also loses the season-long race, even though he won the event. So, um, yeah, I, I'm frankly waiting for there to be an updated um, press release from the uh, LPGA announcing that Rory has won their race to Dubai. And uh, so he can actually get the true triple crown this year. Yeah, it's interesting to go down the DP World Tour, you know, final list, the rankings. As you noted, Rory McIlroy plays in technically 10 tournaments, but of course, four of those are, are major championships. So he plays a handful of times, plays obviously well enough at the majors, well enough in the in the Euro DP World Tour events, I should say, uh, that he did attend. And you look at number two, Ryan Fox plays 24 times uh, of note. Ryan Fox is a Kiwi. Uh, oh, mistakes were made. Mistake, mistakes were made. We called him an Australian. Uh, Learned my lesson. A long time ago. Uh, 24 events and finishes second. You noted uh, John Rahm. John Rahm played in nine total tournaments on, on the DP World Tour. You kind of have to go further down the list. Number eight, Adrian Moronk played 23 events. Like to find, you know, as you move out of the top 12 or so, you know, guys that kind of play the DP World Tour week in and week out. It, it is super interesting just to to think about, uh, go down the list. Will Zalatoris hasn't teed up in, in a number of months. He played in six events, finished seventh on their on their season ending list. So so you just have to kind of smile at this and wonder, like, what are we doing here? Are we just throwing out, you know, money for these events? I, I agree with you, George. It, the European Tour, the DP World Tour has kind of become the European version of the Corn Ferry Tour. They're now just an also ran, uh, you know, a one, a two, whatever you'd want to call it amongst world tours. Um, you know, I don't know, Billy, what, what do you think of, of these guys? Like if you're a Ryan Fox, how do you feel that you've got, you know, Rom and Fitzpatrick and Fleetwood and Rory McElroy jumping in and, 
kind of stealing your thunder to a degree. Well, it's clear that the DP World Tour, you know, values major championships and 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 I guess World Golf Championships. The only way I can come up with how Zalatoris has played seven is four majors plus the uh, match play, and and maybe he played the Scottish Open, you know, um, prior to the British kind of thing or whatever. And so, so it's very clear that they weight those incredibly high, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Ryan Fox, you got to be a, a little slighted that you played 22 or 24, and and Rory played 10, and and now I mean it's it, it's Rory and he's a great player, and and so hey, if you don't like something, play better, right? I mean, like like if if you want more of those, if if the DP World Tour is ranked rated higher towards the majors, then play better in the majors, you know? I mean, the the the, the the rankings aren't a secret of how to get points, right. And how to, and how to go up and, and get more points. But I, I would say if you're a, if you're a rank and file player, you're probably not thrilled with the way that, that these points are distributed and that, that, you know, it, it, for some reason it feels okay that, that Rory finishes first with 10 events. It doesn't really feel okay that Will Zalatoris finishes seventh you know, with, with six events, right. That just doesn't, doesn't quite sit quite right. Uh, with me, if, if you were, you know, a Ryan Fox or a, um, rank and file or, or, or the hundredth on the, on the, on the DP world tour, right. That those guys can kind of just leapfrog you on, on your list without really even playing your tour. So it, it, at the same time, you know, like like all of us uh, on the PGA Tour that owe a bunch of our money to Tiger, those guys owe a bunch of money to to, to Rory and to and to John Rahm and, and some of those guys who have who have stuck with the DP World Tour and continued to play some of the events and and made a commitment to to travel back and forth. You know, a la Sergio did a bunch of that back in the day. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it, it's it's one of those things that that kind of yeah, you can't have a tour without the top guys and you can't have a tour without the rank and file guys. And so you kind of have to find the harmony of how they all work together. Right. I mean, we're doing the same thing over, over on the PGA tour with some of the, the, the changes in, in the 2023 season. But I mean, I I'll come back to Rory. He hasn't been really in Europe for over a decade. He swoops back in. I think he used to play the Irish open quite a bit. I don't know that he's done that in the last year or two. I, I haven't kept track. I know COVID kind of threw a lot of tournaments into disarray. Uh, but then, you know, obviously he comes back for Wentworth. He comes back for the big ticket items, the Scottish Open ahead of the British, um, you know, kind of very much picks and chooses and then goes to the big ticket items in the desert. Um, that, you know, is he really an ambassador for the tour or is he just showing up you know, kind of like everyone got mad at the live players who wanted to just show up and play the big ticket PGA tournaments. Isn't Rory sort of just showing up for the big ticket DP tournaments, you know, save the Irish Open. And I don't know if that's a big one or not. I'm assuming JP McManus, you know, makes sure it's done right. But I, I don't know if it's one of their premier events. Yeah, I think it's a catch-22. You know, having Rory show up at all is is big for the tour. But to your point, having him just show up for the big ones, is that really him supporting the tour or is that him supporting himself? 
And, and it could go both ways because he could not show up to any of those. He could take more weeks off. He could, you know, spend more time at home, have another vacation, you know, do whatever with his free time that, that he wants to do. Or he could go over there and, and, and play some and, and support support that tour in, in some way. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a catch-22 because I don't think you can have one without the other. Yeah, this is an interesting one. And we noted John Rahm actually won the event. This was one of those things where you've got two trophies that you're handing out. This is something that the PGA Tour figured out was really messy and really confusing. And so I think it was three or four years ago they made it so that it was a you know, stroked uh, net event, sort of a starting strokes thing at the, at the Tour Championship. So there was only one final winner at the Tour Championship. You did have this funny thing where John Rahm is holding this one giant trophy and Rory McIlroy holding this other giant trophy next to him. But, but I think this is a good segue into sort of this event at large, because there was a lot of, uh, you know, maybe consternation, if you will, led by John Rahm talking about this event and talking about the strength of this field, at least how top heavy it was at, at the DP World Tour Championship and and contrasting that with the RSM Classic. The RSM Classic, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, but you can look at that field and say it's got 156, although they played short, 156, you know, high level guys, guys that are in the top 200, 250 in the world rankings versus a, an event like the DP world tour where it's very top heavy. You've got five of the top 10 guys, but you, you kind of have the rest of the rank and file to use your term, Billy rounding out the field, you know, the, the top players for the DP world tour that are lower in the world rankings. And so it, it's super interesting just to think about this and maybe talk through like, what is the OWGR maybe get wrong, get right have opportunities for improvement. I know there was a huge um, study, you know, Billy, you may have even been involved in this like many years ago where it was, people felt like the the DP World Tour, then the European Tour was, you know, sort of gaming the system, if you will, and getting a lot of these minimum points and therefore finding easier ways into major championships and into world golf championship events. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this comment that John Rahm made about like, hey, it's it's way harder to win in this limited field event with some top guys, sort of a top heavy field versus a sort of middle of the road, but very, very deep and, and lengthy field at a place like the RSM. That's really such a tough one. It's, it, it, it's kind of a great debate in the, in, in the sense, um, because beating more good players is harder than beating less good players. And so this is kind of the unintended consequence, so to speak of the uh, world golf ranking changes that, that have happened that kind of give more uh, credit, give, give more points based on the depth of field and, and, and kind of the full depth of field all the way down to the last player in the field, how much like strength of field that player brings. And, and, and so it, it'll be interesting to follow this kind of going forward with limited field events uh, with like the hero world challenge coming up, uh, with only 20 guys, albeit all of those are in the top 50 in the world. So, but, but beating more players is harder than beating less players. And I mean, you know, so it's, it's just so hard to, hard to, hard to quantify that and make that make a lot of sense. I, I think that John's got a good point. John Rom's got a good point that, you know, they've got these top ranked players and those are really, really hard to beat. Um, but when you have more middle of the road players, those guys are really hard to beat too, just because one of them's going to get hot. 
you know, if, if you only have to worry about five guys in the field, because it's just the top five and okay, top or the top 10 in the world, five, of the top 10 in the world, you know, a couple of those guys aren't going to have their best, you know, one guy's going to get a little sick and not play good. And, and now it's just two or three guys that are competing. Whereas if you have 156, you, you do kind of the same math, even if they're all kind of equal to one another. And, and it's, it's, it's more than beating two or three, it's beating 25 maybe kind of, kind of thing. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's so hard. I believe it was Mark Brody. I was looking for the, the, the exact stat and, and, and tweet here, but um, you know, basically he was, he was saying that beating, I think it was RSM had 68 in the top 200 and the DP world tour championship had 48 in the top 200. And so beating 68 in the top 200 is harder statistically speaking than beating 48 in the top 200, no matter, you know, how many of those are in the top 10 versus the, you know, 150 to 200, so, so to speak. So it, it, it's an interesting kind of debate and, and it's one of those where maybe statistics don't matter as much as perception matters in that sense. Well, so I think one of the issues that get lost <clears throat> where it's easy to lose sight is the OWGR is not just there to anoint number one it's also to figure out whose numbers 30 through 200 and so you have to not just worry about the points to the number one to the person who wins a tournament and how many they should get but you need to figure out how much the person who finishes 25th should get and to your point 25th at RSM arguably might be harder than 25th at the DP World Tour, um, at the at the DP World Championship. So it's I, I think Rom has a point where he's like, well, wait a minute. Is it possible that I'm going to go win a tournament and I've actually arguably lost ground to someone who won a tournament with you know, no one in the top 30 playing. And I beat, you know, five of the top 10 players in the world, which he has a point to that piece. But then should the guy who finished, you know, we'll call it 40th in Qatar or wherever they played uh, or Dubai, should that guy get more points than the guy who finished 40th and beat 100 guys to get to 40th? And that's where I think that it gets it gets tough to to quantify because you have to sort of satisfy both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, this is where it gets a little interesting. And I know previously in one of the maybe glitches that were, you know, you guys were trying to fix. I say you guys, Billy, is sort of like the PGA Tour feeling like there was some gaming going on on the other side of the pond was this idea of minimum points. And I, and I think like that's part of it. But I think, George, you raised some really good points around like, yes, we're talking about the the winner's point share. But what about like, what is the guy that finished T10 and T20 and T50? Like, should we be talking about the relative share of the overall points that that event gets across, you know, this tournament to that tournament and how their strength of field and their depth of field and how that matters? One thing I thought of, and Billy, you may do this when when you've thought about US Open qualifying and other qualifying events, like you, you tend to have this sort of calculus when you go into amateur or professional, you know, opens. You'd say, well, this one's got, you know, four qualifying spots and it's in a really competitive, you know, part of the country. Uh, and so you're going to go play there uh, or you can go play the Columbus qualifier that has, 
you know, 14 spots, but you're going to play against all the guys that just, you know, finished up at the Memorial last week. And like, that's where you sometimes see these weird bits of calculus around strength of field and and what's, what's available to you. Um, and it's one where I don't think there's a, a solution that's going to make everybody happy other than, and, and I, and we talked about this on the pod, like when we think about the OWGR, it almost has to just be open sourced. I think like, here's the, here's the equation. Here's everything that goes into it. Here's how we're doing everything to where you could almost have people say like, yep, all right, I'm going to take your open sourced algorithm and I'm going to rejigger it in this way or that way. And we're going to see if maybe another way of looking at the top players may make more sense. Well, one of the things, and we talked about this a little bit, that is surprising to me is that it's just a winner's share. You know, everything's just slotted. Once the, the points for the tournament are established, then it just is how, where you finish, you get your slot. So that if, you know, let's say, let's say it's the U.S. Open, right? What was it, 2010 or whatever, when Rory just lit the field, won by eight strokes or whatever it was. He, in my opinion, he should have gotten way more than the normal share of winner's points because he was significantly better than everybody else who was there. And that's not how it works. So it doesn't take into account that not only did you win, but like you were markedly better than everyone else who showed up. Yeah. Like to use, to use your example to, to another degree, when Henrik Stenson and Phil Mickelson had their, you know, duel in the sun, you could argue like those guys should have gotten the lion's share of points allocated to the top 10. Cause they just went out and blitzed the field. Like that would be the sort of mathematical example, maybe George that you're using, which is there's maybe a set number of points available to the entire field, but actually the score differential and like where you slot, not just where you slot in terms of like your final standing, but actually your score differential could impact like a true record of how you played. This episode of the Living It Up podcast is brought to you by our friends at Zero Restriction. For more than 30 years, Zero Restriction has been the leader in outdoor technical golf apparel. Check them out at zerorestriction.com and use code LIVINGITUP30 for 30% off your purchase. Thanks to our friends at Zero Restriction for their support of the Living It Up podcast. Yeah, it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Kind of just the idea that if I beat you by two, it's better than beating you by one kind of kind of thing. And, and if you, you know, if you if you win by four or five, that's a better performance than winning by one. Kind of kind of thing relative to to everybody that was there to 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 your minimum uh, points, Brian. That that we were that you were talking about, and that's kind of the old system of how you know the the strength of field used to bring uh, points to each field, but there was this floor um, of of minimum points for every tour. It it uh, the PGA Tour only used its minimum twelve percent of the time. The European Tour or DP World Tour used it 50% of the time, and all other tours used it every time. So, so, so it was kind of again this inflated um, way that, that that points were given out around the world um, were given out at this minimum, even when the strength of field didn't even meet the minimum on on any other tour, other than 50% of the time it met it on the European Tour. So, it, I think that some of this is 
potentially just growing pains of, you know, Hey, I used to get more points playing over here in Europe doing this, you know, and, and, and John Rahm's kind of looking at it going, wait a second, maybe this isn't such a good idea for me to play so much over here as, as it used to be, you know, two, three years ago. And, and so maybe I got to take a look at that. And that kind of stinks because I like playing in Europe and I like supporting my home country in the Spanish open and, 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 and that kind of thing. And maybe that's going to hurt me more in the world ranking than it, than it used to. And, and so I think that, you know, it's just about this settling out a little bit and, and certainly that the PGA tour is, is going to be more well valued uh, from a, from a depth of peel of depth of field perspective, which kind of brings us to one of the things that, that we've said all along is then, then why not just give live points? If, if as a limited field, their points aren't going to be worth much, why not just do it and kind of, you know, get rid of their gripe and complaint and still watch their world rankings on that tour go down. Yeah. We said it a number of times, the way that it's set up mechanistically, it almost seems like it, it's this, you know, self-perpetuating upward spiral for the PGA tour potentially. And in the same way, a downward spiral for tours like the Asian tour, the DP world tour, other tours around the world. And certainly if live were to get points, you could argue they're in this little kind of death spiral of, yep, you're going to get points. They're going to be limited because you're limited field and, guess what? Because your strength of field is predicated on the OWGR, then you guys are just playing against each other and you all don't, don't rise to the top. So it's tough for you guys to ever gain anything. Um, we could probably talk, you know, differences in the OWGR for, forever. I want well, to talk just, to like, yeah, go ahead. Jump in. You'd, you'd mentioned it, Billy, about would John Rom get sick of going over to Europe to play if he's getting reduced points. And, you know, I, I have to imagine <clears throat> aside from ego and maybe some, you know, language and endorsement contracts. John Rahm isn't really sweating OWGR points. Um, he very clearly knows he's, you know, on any given day, arguably the best player in the world, depending how he's swinging it when he shows up. And do you think that there's actually a risk that the OWGR, like, outsparts itself if you have players like Rom who, you know, go back to play Europe and, and, you know, believe that, Hey, it's important to go and be on, go back and support the, the DP tour and support European golf who, who may, I don't know if it would happen. Like maybe he is drops down to fifth or sixth in the world, but he clips off two majors and he never gets, you know, he never gets to one in the world, but he's clipping off majors at a decent pace. And the OWGR is like, how is that guy not the number one player in the world? Just because, and again, this goes to my point of like, well, hey, if he shows up and he wins, you know, at a 50% clip when he goes to Europe, well, that's pretty good. I don't care. You know, there's there's not a bunch of traffic comes to you know, over there. There's there's good players. They're just as good players at the bottom. Well, there's just as good players in the middle of a DP event as there are at, you know, the RSM or something like that. Um, so do you think that that actually could backfire and make players just sort of not care about OWGR? Um, I, I mean, so long as they're used for criteria for the majors, right, which is another thing we've talked about. And is that a thing that sticks around or, or where does that go? You know, players will certainly care about that top 50 number because that's kind of where the, you know, benchmark is to get in, into all the majors, you know, as it stands today, maybe top 60 for the U.S. Open. But, you know, in, in your scenario, George, if John Rahm's winning majors, him 
you know, finishing second at the Spanish Open is not going to matter. The majors still have the most points available regardless of fields. They still have a set number of points. The majors uh, have 100 points available and the uh, players has 80 points available. That's how it was in the old system. That's how it is in the new system. It's all the other events that kind of get into this, you know, blender and, and figure out how many points spit out at the top. So if you're winning majors, it's going to take care of itself. My um, maybe more concern of uh, than what you're of what you're saying is is actually that the the OWGR could create a less global game of golf because if you are one of these guys sitting there at 45th to 55th, there was a calculus this time of year. We're sitting here, you know, November, you know, and 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 there was a calculus of playing in Thailand, of playing in Australia. Of, of how many fall season events to play on the PGA Tour, because I don't want my divisor to go up. Divisor is the total number of tournaments you've played over the last two years. I, I don't want that to go up if I'm not going to get a lot of points for playing well, right? So there was there was some of these things, oh, I've got to go. There was a year Brant Snedeker went and played in Thailand in like on like December 20th. It was like the week before Christmas or whenever that, whenever that tournament is. And you're like, what is he doing over there? He's trying to stay 50th in the world because he had a tournament that was going to roll off or get points. And you can do this math. Um, and agents are doing this math. And, you know, so, so it more revolves around that top 50 number than it does the number one number to me. And, and kind of is that math going to be such that you no longer go play any world events because your divisor is going to get hit and there's no points available for even having a good week. Yeah. This will be an interesting one to watch. I know we had chatted last week around, you know, what does a win on the Asian tour mean in terms of, I think we said it was like a, a T nine on the PGA tour. And I think it'll be super interesting to watch for, you know, what you consider sort of run of the mill DP world tour, Asian tour, PGA tour events, like how they compare, what does a win mean relative to this tour? What does a top 10 mean relative to the other tours? Uh, we talked a little bit about the the RSM Classic down at, at St. Simon, Sea Island, Georgia. Uh, we can hit some highlights from that one. One by Canadian Adam Spenson. I thought what was super interesting about this one was, you know, not a big name in the world of golf. In fact, I was looking at some of his, some of his stats, not a guy that's, you know, really even had a top five before. Um, and so it's interesting for ha to have a guy who who's never really sniffed you know, a top five, a close call, a playoff to actually go and clip one off. This was, you know, as you know, not a very strong field, but does have Billy, to your point, I think 68 of the top 200 players in the world. So a pretty good opportunity for a lot of guys to hit off sort of the last full field event, you know, before, before Sony, um, you know, going down the leaderboard, you, you did see some guys kind of notable up and comers, uh, Sahith Thagala uh, tied for second, had, had some, Really good putts in the back nine, had some close calls where he could have maybe pushed himself toward a playoff. Uh, Cole Hammer, another kind of, you know, player to watch, uh, finished very high in the in the PGA Tour. U is going to get uh, conditionally uh, some status on on the Corn Ferry Tour if he's not able to secure his card by by virtue of being a top 10. He finished top tied for fifth. He's going to get to play in the next full field event, which is which is Sony, ironically. Um, you know, if you look down the leaderboard, Guys that had a great fall. We we talked about Seamus Power has won in the in the fall. He finished tied for fifth as well. Um, but but I wanted to actually highlight one guy, and this is an interesting guy to consider because these fall events are going to mean a totally different thing this time next year. And that is there's going to be this big dogfight, if you will, between 
you know, the top 70 players in the world already earned their cards. They're going to go to the playoffs and they're going to come back the next year, but you're going to have this like fall finish or whatever they may brand it for these guys, 71 through whatever the number is. And on the corn Ferry tour, they're thrown in this mix. There's one guy that I, that I look at Patrick Rogers, right. Can't miss player in college. In fact, he was one of those players that would have gotten into the PJ tour would have gotten a bunch of starts in the PJ tour through, through this new PJ tour university criteria you know, has never won on the PJ tour, has had a lot of close calls, has finished in the top 10, you know, a fair amount of times, but actually what he's done more than, more than anything, when you look at his numbers is he kind of threatens the leaderboard on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and then tends to fade. And so I wanted to maybe Billy to, to toss it over to you. What are your thoughts on, you know, perhaps guys like Patrick Rogers that fill out this perennial, you know, sort of maybe 70 to 125 category of like pretty steady, obviously fantastic golfers, don't seem to have the, uh, I don't know, winning formula quite quite figured out yet. Uh, how should they be thinking about uh, maybe this new fall finish, this new schedule that's gonna 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 pan out here? I think they should be thinking getting the top seventy because that's gonna make your life a lot easier. However you do that, whether you know that's with a bunch of top finishes or a, or a win and some other top finishes or whatever it is. But to me, that just tells you how hard it is to win. I mean, you, you have to, you alluded to it, Brian, um, you know, with the new PGA Tour University, they have this, you know, underclassmen criteria called PGA Tour University Accelerated. And and so it's, you know, PGA Tour, Tour University is for the four-year players who are seniors and playing and whatever. So, but they have this other criteria whereby somebody who's a quote, generational talent could gain early access to the PGA Tour, you know, without having to finish four years of school. And 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 Patrick Rogers is one of the three that would have met the accelerated criteria to jump to the PGA Tour prior to his senior year. And and so it just it just tells you how hard it is out there. I mean, there's I've said it forever in golf is there's no such thing as a as a sure thing, and there's a no such thing as a never will be, because you would have told Zach Johnson he never will be. And you would have told a bunch of other people that they're a sure thing who you've never heard of. And, and so it's just, it's, it's hard to win out there. And, and it, it's equally as hard to do what Patrick Rogers has done. I, I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of in that 10 million club with no wins, you know, since uh, Brian Davis doesn't play much and Cameron Tringali is on live. He'll, he'll probably, if he doesn't win, in, in the next 18 months, he'll overtake the, you know, most career money without a win kind of thing likely. And, and so it'll be, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's too much, you know, muddy water to see what the fall is going to be and how that's going to play out and who's going to be eligible. And are you allowed to play if you're a top 70 guy or, you know, who, who, what's the tournament field going to be? made up of how many events are there you know how do who keeps their card how do they do that they none, none all that's very un, unclear and um you know nothing's been discussed that, that i've that i've heard anything about i think that's all pretty much behind closed doors in the in the pack and the, the policy board at, at this point which which i do think is rather strange that you could say we've played a fifth of the year and we don't know what the end of the year looks like might be the only sport who don't have the playoffs to find, you know, 20% of the way through the season. But, um, you, you know, and obviously we do have the FedEx cup playoffs to define, but we, we don't have this kind of, you know, keep your card series defined yet. 
So I just think it's hard to win. And, and some guys are, are better at it than others. I mean, I mean, Patrick won a ton of times at Stanford. I mean, I think he, I think, you know, he owns the record for the most wins at Stanford, you know, more than Tiger Woods. And, and so, I mean, he clearly, you know, knew how to win and, and has won a bunch, but it's just, it's, it's, it's different out there. And, and, you know, he, he definitely seems like a guy who will keep knocking on the door and one of them's got to fall his way. I just want to thank you for actually reminding me that Cameron Tringali played on live. I had totally forgotten that he even existed. So we've talked a little bit about this uh, earlier in the show. The other thing that was interesting is the, the PIP program was announced today. Uh, this historically was was ten guys. They've expanded it to to twenty guys as part of the new uh, top player uh, category, if you will. Uh, those players that will earn pit money, but also have uh, what, what I will call golden handcuffs. Right here, here's a bunch of money that we're giving to you, but it comes with a lot of strings attached. They actually ended up uh, making it twenty three players because they had criteria from the prior years, and now going forward, they have a new set of criteria, and so. It's not 20 guys, it's actually a total of 23 guys. So they're awarding a little bit more than $100 million. They're actually awarding $106 million. Um, I'll give you my sense. And I talked about them as golden handcuffs. This to me is interesting in a number of ways. And, and, and George, we could talk a little bit about this from a maybe a, a legal or an employment standpoint. You know, what does this really make players? Because to me, it makes them beholden to the PGA tour, right? The, the tour loves to talk about independent contractors. It's been a, a constant line of refrain with, with everything in the last six to eight months. But right now, what you are saying is congratulations. Here is a bunch of money, um, but you've got to go out and, and do some things for us, namely play in these, you know, 14 events that we've allocated and then the majors and then these three other events. Um, it, but there's also some other strings attached. I know, Billy, we were talking about like, what are all the things that are involved? Um, you've got to go do some things on the tour's behalf. There was this very notable and, and maybe controversial story with Bryson DeChambeau, where he wasn't awarded some portion of his pit money. I think even half of his pit money from, from the last year, because he was not able to complete some of these, some of these obligations. So, you know, what's, what say you guys, and maybe George, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Like, what do you think <clears throat> of this, you know, new pip? the way it's landed, maybe any surprises that you saw on that list? I can't for the life of me understand how Jason Day landed on that list. Um, I'm glad to see he's healthy and playing more. Um, his story has been well-documented, like vertigo and then having some back issues. And I think he also had some family tragedy and his mom passed within the last like 18 months. So he's had a lot on his plate. Um, so and he's definitely been showing up on leaderboards a little bit more. So it's good to see he's healthy. But how he popped onto that list for any meaningful reason, whereas someone like Hideki did not. Hideki was one of these add-ons, um, is is like a real, real head-scratcher to me as to how this is all calculated. Going back to your question about, well, does this create a potential employment? Not really, because the PIP is earned on what you did last year. So it's basically like a bonus for work performed. Um, it, you know, I'll, I'll use law firms as an example. Um, they're notorious for awarding the bonuses, you know, in December, congratulations, you had a great year. Your bonus will be paid if you are employed as of April 1st. So if they terminate you, they pay you, but if you jump ship to, you know, go to some other firm before April 1st, you don't get your bonus. 
Um, so, and by that point, you're already, you know, at least a quarter into your billables for the following year. So you're like, well, I guess I shouldn't leave now because I'm ready for my time. So that that's a game as old as time with people making sure that if I'm paying you this bonus, you're not going to like take the money and run. Um, now, a couple of interesting things. Tiger was number one at 15 million. However, I guess he will receive it. He'll receive 25%, even though he's not playing the Tournament of Champions. But he's not going to be able to do any of the other things required to get his 75, I don't think. So how does he get the remainder? And if they create some special carve-out for him, I'm totally fine with it. Like, let's let's just stop and be like, for the next, as long as Tiger has breath in his lungs, if the PGA Tour wants to break him off $15 million a year for services rendered, like, no golf person in the world is going to bat an eye and be like, how dare you? Um, so that one's kind of curious to me. So, so let, me, then, let me let me jump in yeah. on that one, and I'll let you keep going with, with, with number two and three you got. But, but so... Um, so you only have to play the 20 events if you're eligible. Okay. So, so if you were somehow to finish in the top 20 of the, of the PIP and not qualify for the majors, then you don't have to play them to, 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 you, you don't have to play all 20 is the, is, is, is the, you know, is the nuanced language. Cause you only have to play them if you're eligible. If you were to not make the FedEx cup playoffs, if you were to subsequently not make it to the tour championship, then you don't get docked for having not made it to the tour championship and thus not played one of the elevated events. So, so, you know, injury and all that stuff is going to be kind of exempted. Don't worry. Okay. Tiger's going to get his full money. <laughs> and there's, and there's even, and there's even a more nuanced carve out than that that's going to ensure he gets it for the next 15 years if you read deep into this thing. So you're, you, you will be just fine. Yeah, as he should. Like I, I don't think, you know, it's almost silly that he's even included in it. They should just say it's $85 million to 20 guys or whatever. And Tiger's just getting clipped 15 right off the top of the tour purse every single year. I don't care about that. But the fact of these you have to now play these 20 events plus three that we choose, you know, the sort of off-brand events. Sounds an awful like guaranteed upfront money for the coming season. Because Rory now doesn't have to make a cut and he's getting 12 mil smashed into his account. So how's that any worse, different, less competitive than Pat Perez getting a guaranteed, I don't know, I think I heard it was $8 million or $12 million to go play on live. How is that any different than the players who are getting upfront guaranteed money on live? Because if this was from last year, and as long as you do the following things, you are guaranteed to get this check. It's the exact same thing so i don't want to hear about lack of competition there's no integrity to it they're all now literally money good for the entire year yeah there's no question that it is it is both the golden handcuffs that you speak of because basically by the time you play all the way through the end of the season to get your 75 percent you got you got to play you know all the elevated events so, so that doesn't happen until the tour championship is over, in which case, if you've done that, you're probably 
in the pip again. So now you're re-upped to have to do this again and again and again and again and again, which is how it's designed, right? To keep the talent here. The question is for the, you know, numbers five or six through 20, it's not enough money to keep you from taking the live contract. So if, if it's just about money, it's, it's, it's not enough, right? I mean, like the, the 20th guy is getting 2 million. I mean, Jason Day, Adam Scott, they could go get 50 or 75 probably from live right now to, to go do it for them. So, so that three or four or whatever those guys got is, is not enough to kind of really keep you over here in, in, in the way you think about it. I mean, like, just, just when you just do this on balance, like the 20th guy gets 2 million bucks. If, if he decides he really doesn't want to play all 20 of, of the elevated events, he, he, 2 million, I mean, it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, but like, you have to think about what these guys endorsements are worth. You have to think about what they've made on course up to that point for the year. Maybe they say, I'm going to sit one out and I'll give up, you know, 75%. I'll give up 1.5 million. I get the 500 up front for fun you know, 25% of it. So, you know, maybe they throw away 1.5 million because they want to go to a bachelor party. I mean, I don't know. Oh, and or, so the, be... or theoretically they could throw out Didry and there's probably the injury clause that could get, that could get called in. Yeah, there's a bunch of ways totally that I think fair. is, there's, I think is, I think it's almost like stay in our good graces and, and we're going to make sure this gets paid. Yeah, to you. That, that, that's probably true. Cause there's actually even a commissioner's, you know, uh, clause there that says the commissioner can do whatever the heck he wants um you, you know <laughs> in any way at his sole discretion so you know that's in there too yeah i agree particularly as you look down the list like the top you know 10 got 5 million or more but even those guys at 7 8 9 10 xander shoffley matt fitzpatrick will zeltors tony finau like really what you may have done is if any of these guys were were on the fence uh you, you may have just like increased the signing money that that lives going to have to pay to them because they can look at this and say like i'm also foregoing a bunch of this guaranteed money like you're you're kind of just making the contract negotiations perhaps a little more straightforward in terms of what they might be giving up if they do decide to to make a jump and there of course have been rumors about guys that that may make a jump uh, i think greg norman has been quoted as saying he 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 intends to have seven more players uh you know before the next time live tees it up i think in either january or february which by the way, that that schedule is not finalized yet. Although there's been a bunch of a bunch of rumors and some some confirmations, um, but it, it's an interesting one. And I I call them golden handcuffs because I think it is a stay in our good graces, and this is just the start of it. We talked about this uh, golf league, this uh, simulator golf league. Like all of these guys, you'd have to imagine are also going to be participants on that simulator golf league, and. They're also going to get paid X for that as well. And so it's just like, you're our top guys. You're going to get taken care of. And everyone else, if you didn't make this top guys list, guess what? Go go get go get hot and also have a great social media presence and talk really well about us and maybe do some other stuff to, to make the top list next year. So a couple other happenings that we can get to uh, across the world of golf. One thing that I thought was notable, this came out, uh, there's been some you know, flyovers uh, of Augusta National of late. Uh, people are now confirming and sort of doing some GPS sleuthing as to like how long the, the par five 13th hole is. By some estimates, uh, the hole will be around 545 yards. And by PJ Tour standards, that's not a very long par five. But what makes this one particularly daunting is they took what was a, a pretty narrow shoot coming out of uh, 
coming out of that hole and you kind of had to sling a sling a draw for a righty or hit a big cut for a lefty and they just moved it back 40 or 50 yards so there's a really really narrow shoot that you've really got to hit off and, and one uh maybe anecdote that i heard mark leishman's caddy talk about and he said at augusta national they leave uh, no stone unturned and one of the things they saw during the practice rounds was that the the trees like the limbs on on 13 were kind of like not overhanging quite as much as they remembered and when they got to the to the first round on thursday they noticed that they were now overhanging and, and they talked or they saw that they were actually a pulley system that could make the limbs go in or out depending on on how they wanted the hole to set up or maybe where where the tee box was placed so you know a place that that, that leaves no stone unturned maybe making that a, a true par five now uh, I'm curious, Billy. What what say you? You you played one uh, one Masters. What was the 13th hole like, and and what do you anticipate it is like now that it's been la- lengthened a bit? I think it's definitely going to play more like a true par five. I mean, even though you're right, 545 is not not that long by by standards. The the tee shot's a little uphill. It'll land more now into the hill for most guys. Um, you, you know, the ball is really not going to run very much because the landing area, you know, is is now um very pitched back at the players with with that additional 30 yards um going back there it'll make slinging it around harder to your to your point you know because you're, you're going to really have to get it kind of you can't start it left at all so you, so you're going to have to really kind of work it hard um off of the pine trees in the distance and so i think that really it'll make for actually a bit more compelling of of second shots into the into the par five if you're going for it because you're going to see a lot more players playing from the severe uh, right to left slope that that kind of is the you know average players driving landing zone now more players will be playing from there um, as opposed to getting it past that like many of the longer hitters have done for the last couple of years and, and getting it into a little bit more of a flatter lie so you know that's definitely one of the more severe. Uh, lies on the golf course um, is is that 13th fairway second shot that that landing area so more balls will be in that severe slope um, and and you'll see probably less shots at the green as 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 a result you think it's gonna I mean because that was kind of uh, I mean almost like a par four and a half for a long time um and really started you know once you cleared him in corners like now the horse race starts and we're going to see a lot of red numbers coming down <clears throat> do you think this change is going to take that away i think you're going to see still tons of people going for it in two you're just going to see less eight irons hit in it at two in two you know you're going to see more five irons you're going to see more um hybrids you know even even three woods from from some of the you know shorter players potentially although a three wood off of a big hook lies a really hard shot so it it might turn into basically a three shot hole for the you know second half of the distance field so to speak and and you're going to see maybe some more imaginative shots having to be played off of the side slope by the the longer players so i i mean you know anytime you lengthen a hole it, it in theory makes it more difficult and and this one is is no exception to that rule and it and it also probably has an accentuated piece because of that severe slope that i was talking about um there in in, in the 13th fairway which will be more the predominant landing zone of, of drives now i heard it was supply chain issues and they just were running out of crystal 
and they were just tying, you know, they were giving out too much crystal for Eagles. And I think it's all supply chain related, really. Make, makes sense. I mean, yeah. yeah. So a couple other big hits or quick hits uh, along the PJ Tour. There was one thing that happened, and this didn't get a ton of publicity, but I think it's noteworthy. And it's noteworthy because we talked about the top players and there's going to be this elevated event series uh, really taking shape in 24. You'll kind of see bits and pieces of that uh, this coming season in the 23 season. But that was the news that Honda, the longest running sponsor of the PGA Tour, uh, 42 years, is actually pulling the plug on their event. You, you could argue that the Honda, maybe more so than any other event, has gotten the short end of the draw on just their placement in the schedule and more of the top 10, top 20 players in the world choosing to skip it just for where it fit in the schedule. And certainly now, I'd have to imagine, I haven't heard them say anything about uh, about their, their decision-making you know, not being chosen as one of these elevated events um, and and being in this second tier or, or lower tier, whatever they end up kind of calling those those events has got to sting a little bit for, for a very long time sponsor. I, I'm very curious on this for a number of levels. One, there's always been, you know, rumors and speculation about about live and, and franchising or, or advertiser sentiment in general. Um, and this is an interesting sort of, you know, way to look at the scales and, and how you're seeing sponsors that maybe are not as enamored with the, this new PGA tour change. I don't know, Billy, what, what you think about this? I know you, uh, you, you nearly won the Honda champ Honda, Honda classic one time. Yeah. I finished uh one shot out of the uh, Rory Russell, Russell and Ryan playoff um, back in 2014, I guess it was, but um, the, the Honda has been around a long time and, and, and they certainly no question, like you said, Brian, got the short end of the scheduling stick here when when the players moved back to march um they lost their field for for a number of reasons um you know even even the guys who live in in west palm beach and jupiter and all that stuff you know who, who used to support the event most of them stopped playing because it was just kind of too many in the row it was right after the west coast right before now the players and so you know now you have the players and bay hill and 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 the west coast before it those events after it and it, it it definitely got the short end of the stick as as far as scheduling goes so it doesn't surprise me to to see honda kind of pull out of this and not and and not you know f feel like they were slighted as being the longest standing one we should have gotten more uh you know pull so to so to speak to to do something and and maybe they did maybe they didn't maybe this was a decision that was coming no matter what and you know honda was kind of done and 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 we, and we don't know all those things but um no question that that the the honda classic is that the field's been deteriorating and and it doesn't seem like there's any way for that to turn around anytime soon based on where the schedule sits and where it's going yeah i mean you go one step further and i, I am curious to see what happens next year so um the the f1 season just wrapped up and so red bull won the f1 series using honda engines um and like i think also just recently within like the last month or so the the sole the owner the one dude who basically owned red bull also passed away um i'm curious if if honda looking at what it spends its marketing dollars on um is not making a move to be full in on on F1 next season, um, because that commitment is, I think, almost nine figures if you're going to sponsor a team. Um, and they would have potentially the top driver in the world 
and everything else. Um, so it it speaks. It's interesting for for golf that they went away entirely and didn't figure either a different event out or something else. But I'll be very curious to see if this isn't potentially their opportunity um, to to jump into a completely different pool. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one to consider. You know, certainly one could argue too that the the timing. Uh, when it comes to sponsorships is 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 not good there are many you know companies around the world that are looking at a you know perhaps a, a looming recession and looking at you know cutting their workforce cutting their marketing budgets and so this could be one of those things where you know the ceo turns to his marketing leadership and says like what tell me the roi around uh, that that event again and they say oh well it's this and that and customers and clients and you know so i'm curious and, and maybe billy to, to get your thoughts on this like how have you seen anything change with sponsors at events? Like are things like getting bigger, smaller, more intimate? Are they like, like how, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with the question other than to say, like, do do you see a scenario where this just means someone else is going to fill in? Like there's, there's ready and willing sponsors ready to jump in, or should they be worried about, about this? Is this maybe others, you know, going to jump ship as well? I would say pre-live there's, people in the wings trying to get events, you, you know, they're, they're, they're lined up probably three or four deep. If, if somebody's out, you know, um, you know, there's, there's sponsors looking for new events, there's sponsors looking for ways into the schedule um, to, to be a part of the tour, how, how that goes with live. I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, you know, does, does Honda pick up a live team kind of like you're saying, or do they go all, all in F1 George, I, I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, right. Watch this space. We'll, we'll see what, where, where Honda kind of spends that money the 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 truest thing about golf spend is if the ceo plays golf they know how to use it and if the ceo doesn't play golf they don't understand it and and so you know most of what you see are you know ceos of companies that that play golf um and if they're around long enough then they you know get it going and 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 get the roi established um in in real dollars in 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 real numbers right because it's 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 a bit uh abstract to start if you haven't done it, it you know as a as a company as a marketing you know department uh, then then it's kind of it's it's abstract but but if you can do it for three four years then then you can actually get real numbers and and and, and it does work it does work um but you know, that's one of the first things that, you know, new CEOs slash, right. And, and, and that, I don't think that's not the case in, in Honda Motors, you, you know, they've had the same CEO in Japan for a long time and, and the same leadership over there. So I don't think that's the case in, in this particular event. I think it's, it's hard to read it other than like, we see no way to a good field again. So we are going to go somewhere else in, in, in the case of Honda, but but I, I don't think that they'll have a hard time, you know, getting a, a sponsor. They, they may, they, they will have a hard time attracting a big field, which means they'll have a hard time keeping their purse up, which means that their charity dollars will go down, which means, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a number of different, different pieces to that puzzle. But um, I don't, I don't have any doubt that, uh, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to play the West Palm beach classic in 2024 without a title sponsor. So I, I feel feel good about that from the PGA Tour business standpoint. It's interesting because everything you just described, and you know, seeing it, it used to be a big deal. Now it's, I just, I think it's a hard ask to go 
go get somebody. And now that everything is even going to be more tied into the FedEx Cup, it's you want me to be a title sponsor on an event that's really just a marketing event for another company that is is out there because you can't say my tournament without having to say that tournament too. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I obviously for the hope sake of just being a golf fan who likes to see as much golf as possible, you hope they find someone and they keep the tournament going and strong. But I, I think this this might, in fact start to be uh, I guess an unforeseen part of all of this plan that is going a direction that was they might have expected or at least said like oh this could happen and now it is happening um, because I don't think Honda's alone being a sponsor who's they've seen their field go down and down and down and down I think there are some other sponsors who have sort of been lucky because players just like the course or fit their schedule. But now with all of this new stuff, like that's going to change. And if, if these guys start seeing what Honda saw, it's like, why, why stick around? It's going to be interesting to see how the, the purses of these kind of call them second tier events, you know, are, are able to stay at the levels that they are now. Um, with the money being pumped into the elevated events to, you know, $20 million purses, can you keep the other events at eight, nine million? Um, or do those regress kind of to all John Deere's, you know, at, at five, six million kind of kind of deal? I, I think that that seems maybe more likely to me, unless the PGA Tour is somehow going to, you know, take more of the purse on corporately versus the title sponsor and, and, and TV sponsor, because the TV sponsor is not going to, you know, get as good a ratings on these other events um, to your point, George, and the, and the title sponsor is not going to get the ROI that they may be used to. But, I, but from a title sponsor standpoint, I, I just, if, if there's a CEO that plays golf, then he knows how to, he or she knows how to use it and, and, and they can, they can make it work for their business. And and that's ultimately all, all they care about is they don't, they don't really care about the PGA tours business. It's a way for them to boost their business. So if they can do it, they'll do it. It, it might be for a lower number. I think that's very real. So maybe what you're saying is we're looking at the Piper Sandler uh, classic here before too long. That could be a conflict of interest um, based on the recent board policy board announcement, but, but we'll see, we'll see. It could be. Maybe, maybe the George Dowell Open. Maybe we can get one of those. Um, the living, in, the living it up uh, challenge. Living uh, it up I, challenge. I, we get, we get uh, a lot of, we get a lot of good, good options. I, I, I looked into it. Unfortunately, I had, I, I placed what I was, the capital I was going to use for that. I think was tied up in FTX. So, uh, at the moment, my hands are tied, and we're just going to see where that shakes out. So this is one we could uh, we could talk about for for a length of time, but we're going to spin this to a segment we will call Great Golf Debates, uh, pending a, another name we might come up with uh, later. We'll see. But for now, this segment, Great Golf Debates, brought to you by our friends at Zero Restriction, the leader in outdoor technical golf apparel. So we will start with a, a juicy one and, and one great golf debate that I think I may be in the minority here amongst my esteemed uh, hosting colleagues. And this is a free relief from a divot. I would say every event, you know, you will see a ball sort of rolling along the fairway and the commentator will say something like, oh, he just missed that divot. Or sadly, a ball will roll into the divot and they're like, oh, man, he's going to have a tough shot coming out of that divot. 
you see a lot of this, particularly on the PJ Tour, where where Billy, you've got you know guys that understand course management and strategy, and they're sort of like laying up on a on a par four, for example, or maybe there's a layup sort of area on a par five where everyone sort of hits to if they are laying up. And so I tend to fall out on this debate that you could quite easily play this as unmarked ground under repair, and you could use your playing partners to protect the field from any sort of uh, you know, very illiberal use of, of said rule change um, by saying, you know, bring over your playing partner. Hey, this is below the surface of the turf. I'm going to take free relief from unmarked grounded repair. They say yay or nay, and you just take relief as if it was an embedded ball or if you were in marked ground under repair. So I tend to be of the belief that when you hit the ball in a closely mown surface or however we want to define it in your own fairway, let's define it, something like that, that if you hit a ball into a divot and you are below the surface of the turf, there is nothing about like the skill that went into that shot. You know, if, if George and I are playing, we both hit it down the fairway and he's in a divot and I'm not like, I get that that's rub of the green for some people, but I just look at that as like an opportunity where we could use a better interpretation of the rules to make it quote unquote fair for everyone involved. So I'll, 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 I'll pass it over to, to maybe George first. Uh, on I this one, say, there it is. You, you lost me at interpretation because you are going to be out for 12 hour rounds with people interpreting below the surface or whatever the turf or whatever. Like, yeah, I, listen, there's no question a divot is not part of the architect's design, it is completely ground under repair. You know, some courses, the fancy ones will go replace the divots overnight and try and get something going um, or they'll sand them to make sure it's as close as you can get. Like, I get it. It stinks. Um, I'm actually amazed candidly that it doesn't happen way more on tour for the exact reasons you point out that these guys all pretty much kind of hit into certain areas when they're getting around a course and, you know, statistics would dictate, you know, especially after you had 156 guys play two rounds in a row and then they just come out to the same course. I know they move tee boxes to probably alleviate some of that, but um, I, I, I totally get it. It's, it's not a like completely frivolous argument, but it would be awful. It would be miserable. So, and so simply for the reason of people arguing over below the turf like i'm out so i'll pass it to billy but 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 to just maybe go into this point if it was we're playing a, a threesome here and and i say to you guys hey this looks like a kind of old-ish divot the ball's sitting down below the turf don't you think this get resolved quickly because both you just look at each other and are like nah you're not no you're not getting that one and then we and then like you move on because in the end like it's up to you guys to determine it not me i think it takes too long brian i'm i'm, I'm with george uh it, it 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 sucks to hit in a divot. This is why everyone should repair their divots. Here's your public service announcement for the episode is, is put your divots back, right? Because then the ball doesn't have this problem. Don't sand the divots overnight. That's my pet peeve on tour. Like leave them dirt. That makes it so much better for all you casual golfers. Put sand in your divots because that helps out the grounds crew and, and, and helps you out over the long term of not having a wavy fairway but on tour i hate it when they sand them because you don't know how much sand's in there i'd rather just play out of the dirt and know what i've got um but 
No, I, I, I think it takes too long. I mean, in, in, in a casual round, if it's the three of us or if it's the, you know, club championship or something, maybe it's pretty simple. It's like, hey, but no, that's that's not that's not one. But but you start going on tour, you start playing for, you know, millions of dollars and, and PIP money and all this other stuff, then then, you know, you're gonna have a rules official called over, you know, more times than you know normal and and it's just going to slow things down even more so you know this was the number one complaint number one idea brought to the usga when they did the rules changes in 2019 and it was the one they spent the least amount of time talking about that's interesting they spent the least amount of time on it because i've heard it said otherwise and, and this debate happens all the time is that people will say well in the fairway or let's call it closely mown areas you should have a quote-unquote like People will say perfect. I don't agree with perfect lie, but you should have a good lie, right? You hit it in the short grass. You should have a good lie. And so there are people that will say, well, one way to maybe get around this is to say it's preferred lies, right? We're playing preferred lies in closely mown areas. And that may be one way to get around this. Also makes the game take longer. I mean, if you just add up rounds of golf, I mean, preferred now, I lies will, takes longer, period. I will say this, like the, the caveat I will give to this, because it was the... Maybe in all of the history of golf was Paul Casey on the 16th hole at the players last year or this year where he literally rolled not into a divot, but into an actual pitch mark and his ball sat down into it. Now had his own ball embedded. He is free and clear. If he, if we're playing, we walk up to that and you're like, oh man, that's unlucky. You got no roll. And you pop it out and you play on. He's got millions of eyeballs watching it. So he's stuck. And that was 100% garbage because you can't hit it. You can't put a stick. I mean, you can't really do anything with it. You can play out of a divot. It's not great, but you can definitely play. That thing was atrocious. So there's where I will give you, if you show up and your ball is buried in one way or another, I don't care how it got there and what put the hole there. You can lift it from that perfect pitch mark because that was 100% horrible. Yeah, I've always been a proponent of using the embedded ball sort of way that they describe it, right? Below the surface of the turf, validated by, you know, you're playing competitors as a way to do this. I agree with you, George. That was like the, the most unlucky break you could imagine because I agree if it was not on television – he would not have thought twice or or somebody didn't tell him, man, like, sorry, that's not your own pitch mark. You landed in someone else's like pitch mark. Um, he would have not known any difference. And he would have just said, hey, embedded ball, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take relief from this embedded ball. Uh, it doesn't sound like I'm going to sway my my esteemed colleagues here on why you should get uh, free relief from a, from a divot when I hit a perfect shot in the middle of freaking fairway. But, uh, you know, hey, great golf debates are are perhaps not meant to be solved. Um, I can believe I'm right. You guys can believe you're right. Send us your great golf debate, or maybe tell us why you believe I'm right. And, and George and Billy are wrong, of course, uh, on this one, hit us up on Twitter. Um, as we look to maybe, you know, what's coming up next, uh, we've certainly got the sleepy time in golf schedule. However, you know, the alpha of golf tiger woods will be taking it up uh, a few times in the next few weeks. He's going to play the hero world challenge, not this weekend, Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. But next weekend, uh, the Hero World Challenge, and then we're going to see him again playing the match the week after, and then just another week after that, he's going to play the uh, the father son uh, with with his with his young son. So we've got a lot of Tiger to look forward to. Uh, but other than that, it's kind of a a pretty sleepy time in competitive golf. So 
enjoy your uh, turkey day, fellas, and I will bid you adieu for now. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to the Living It Up podcast. Follow us on the Twitters at Living It Up Pod. See you there.